If you would turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 104, Psalm 104. We will be looking through this uh, psalm this morning as a parallel and a complement to the reading that we had uh, this morning. Thank you for uh, Bill and Bill for your, uh, uh, for your uh, two-step there. And uh, appreciate it. I told, I told Bill that uh, better be careful with this uh, introduction because I have the last word, but uh, <laughs> must have kept him in line. So. <laughs> There's a very simple question that careful-minded people ask themselves periodically. It's a question that really should be foundational to every decision that is made by individuals, by organizations, corporations. It's a question that businesses need to ask themselves frequently if they're to survive. It's really a question that we need to constantly be asking uh, if we're going to avoid in our churches uh, the uh, twin evils of dead orthodoxy and non-orthodoxy. It's a question that every person must answer before he sets goals for his own life or can evaluate the success of his life. It's really a, a primary question that we all need to ask. Uh, in establishing our philosophical system, really one of the first questions of theology. But oftentimes it's a question that once asked and answered once, we tend to forget them, we forget the question and disconnect it from how we live our lives. And the question is, why are we here? Why are we here? It's a philosophical question, of course, but it's more than that. It really strikes to the heart of our faith and our theology, you probably heard at some point the first question of the Westminster Confession, Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Same question appears as the second question of a catechism that Benjamin Keach used, that we uh, prepared, that we used with our children. The question was, why did God make you and all things? But it's a question that really extends beyond the theology textbook per se, formal catechisms. It's a question that really we must use, at least the answer thereto, to govern every function of our lives in our church. It's an answer that should govern our family life, our industry, our entertainment, our finances, down to the finest details of our lives. Why are we here? And we're made soberly aware that if we get the answer wrong, we will be living for the wrong reasons and fail to fulfill God's purpose in our lives. We often turn to the book of Genesis, first chapter of Genesis, to answer this question, and it's a good place to start. In it we find the questions, who am I and where did I come from, answered quite admirably. Questions that do much to inform the answer to the question we're asking this morning. Why are we here? But this passage actually falls short of a direct answer to the question we're asking. There's actually a second passage here that we've turned to this morning, Psalm 104, a second major creation account found in the Bible, and actually the longer of the two. It seems to be crafted more for the purpose of answering the question that we have posed this morning, namely, why am I here? Psalm is a very lofty one, one that raises our eyes to God. And several commentators I've consulted in preparing this message describe the psalm as Genesis 1, seen through the eyes of a poet. 
And in fact, as we look through this, we're actually going to see that the same general chronology of Genesis 1 is followed, but I think we would make a mistake if we understand it to unfold as six days per se. It begins in uh, verse 2 with the creation of light, followed by a description of the earth and the skies, followed in verses 5 to 13 with a description of the separation of the waters from the land, the formation of the earth, days 2 and 3, follows with a description of uh, the animals and the, uh, and, uh, the creation of plant life first, and then details about the sun and moon, and then the animals and people, which are created on the fifth and sixth days. But again, I think if we are to read this as a sequence of days, I think we're going to miss the major point of this psalm. Psalm 104 is less concerned with what God accomplished than it is why and how he accomplished these things. And in answering these questions, why did God make all things and how did he make them, that we are better informed, I think, to answer the question that appears at the end of the psalm. Why am I here? And we find that the, the end of this psalm is different from the end of the Genesis passage that was just read. In Genesis 1, we find a very descriptive, uh, a descriptive account of the uh, creation and a very descriptive summary. It was very good. But here in Psalm 104, which tells us how and why God created the world, the the, the psalm begins and ends with a prescription. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. And if I could summarize the last five verses, which we will this morning, I'd do it this way. Because of the power and the providence and the wisdom with which God created and maintains the world, we should make it the very goal of our existence to please Him. So let's look here at the three sections of this psalm. You can hear what I said in the... Uh, in the big idea I gave you, the power, the providence, and the wisdom of God are the highlights of this psalm, and so I want to go through each of these sections. So we're going to begin here with the power of God. The power of God in creation should cause us to please Him. First nine verses set this forth. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and with majesty. The Lord wraps Himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides along on the winds, wings of the wind. He makes the wind his messenger. Flames of fire are his servants. He set the earth on its foundation. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depth as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. They flowed down over the mountains and went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them, and there you set a boundary that they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. So Psalm 104 here begins again with this clue as to the author's purpose when he begins with this injunction here, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. The term is used of God's action towards us, in which he enriches us or fills us with all that we need. But here, the objects are reversed. So God, a man is blessing God. 
which means, I think, to recognize the inherent richness and worth and fullness of God. Perhaps the the good English equivalent here would be to worship. That is, to recognize the worth of God and attribute it to Him. So that's where he begins, and as we're going to see, that's exactly where he ends. We are to bless the Lord. Why? Well, because God is very great, very splendid, very majestic. And what is this greatness? Well, the author unpacks it over the next several verses, not so much with a dictionary definition, but with a series of pictures to show us how great he is all of them involving his creative mastery over all that he has made. And these powerful forces of nature, these these forces of nature to which we necessarily submit day in and day out. First, he begins with light. We rarely ponder the fact of light, right? But we order our lives very much by its presence or absence. Without it, plants and animals die and men go mad and if you lost power last week, you went to bed early, right? <laughs> because there was, nothing, there was no light. You couldn't see. But for God, this light is just a mere garment, something He can use or discard at will. He can distribute it or withdraw it. He's the Creator, and unlike His creatures, He's not restricted by the presence or absence of light. Second, the psalmist turns to the vast starry hosts. The heavens, which so amaze us and so beckon us to explore their infinite depths, but we're also held at bay by them. It's been only in the last few decades that we've even escaped our own atmosphere uh, to look a little bit more closely. And the more that we explore, the more we realize how very tiny we are in this universe of God's. But to God, verse 2 says, they're a mere tent, a temporary shelter, right? A seasoned camper can put it up and dismantle it in a matter of minutes. takes me a little bit longer, but the point is made, right? It's just a convenient, temporary structure that he uses to carry out his immediate purposes. And then he goes on to talk about what's going on inside of this tent, the atmosphere. The atmospheric conditions to which, again, we are bound to submit. We wake up in the morning and we are obliged, based on the weather, to generate heat, to shovel sidewalks, to get a coat or an umbrella. We listen for tornado sirens and hide in our basements. Why? Because we can't control the weather. can't be done. read an interesting article recently about the attempts by the Chinese to produce rain to water their vast desert regions and make them productive. And They spent tens of millions of dollars in their research, but gave up on the idea because even though they were able to seed clouds and produce rain, they had one major problem. They couldn't move the clouds. They couldn't push them where they needed them to be. But here we find that God rides the clouds about like a chariot, literally, of course, but the point is made. He controls exactly where they go. He gives them wings. He directs them like a pilot directs an airplane. The winds, verse 4 says, are his messengers. And the flames of fire, which I understand to be lightning bolts, are his, you know, are, 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 are controlled completely by him. He sends them very precisely, exactly where he wants, with specific intent. This is our God. 
We're bombarded routinely on a daily basis by the alarms of panic-stricken environmentalists who are hysterical about what's happening with the Earth's temperature and their inability to control it. And they're terrified by a fear born really from nothing more than the simple delusion that they live in a universe without a creator. Now, my point is not to say that we can abuse what God has given to us. We have a stewardship, of course. At the same time, we have confidence based on what we know of Scripture and the promises that are there that as long as this earth remains, there's going to be seed time and harvest day and night, summer and winter, as long as this earth is here. Because we have a creator. Fourth, God turns his discussion to the stability of the earth and his control over these vast, powerful seas that we, that we find. And we find by his vast power and grace, he manipulates those to do whatever he wishes. I think verses 6 to 9 probably has reference here to Noah's flood, where the waters surged out uh, from, from, the, from the depths and covered the mountains for a brief time, covered the earth again with water like it had been, but then, like a piece of clothing, he takes it back off again. He promptly removes the water like a garment. But then we find that he established much sharper lines of demarcation between the land and the water. He makes barriers that the, the water can never cross. Now, those barriers perhaps are not as precise as we would like them to be, but there are certain areas where those waters cannot go because of God's decree. And the Bible is replete with passages that assert God's absolute control over all of the events that take place in His universe. Psalm 135, I know the Lord is great. Our Lord is above all gods. Whatever He pleases, He does in heaven and earth, in the seas and in all the depths. He causes vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for rain. He brings forth the wind from His treasuries. Job 28, God looks to the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. He imparts weight to the wind, meets out the water by measure, and sets a limit for the rain, a course for the thunderbolt. He sees it, declares it, establishes it, and also searches it out. Job 38, 11, I just like the language of this one. God shuts the seas behind doors and says to the waves, this far shall you come, but no further. Here shall your proud waves stop. You rule the swelling of the sea, Psalm 89 says. Isaiah 51, I am the Lord your God. I stir up the seas and cause the waves to roar. And the point is this. God alone is able to control the uncontrollable within His universe, and so He can be trusted to keep all the rest of His promises to us as well. So God is an immense and powerful God, and we are by comparison toys in the playhouse of God's universe. And if for no other reason, we should make it the goal of our existence to please Him. But we err if our evaluation stops here. One of our family's favorite set of movies when our kids were growing up, Toy Story, the toys are all given, you probably know the story, some of you might not, but the toys are all given conscious existence. They're absorbed with making their child happy so that he will not tire of them and throw them away. Because children have immense authority over their toys. 
and they do not always treat their toys well. They eventually tire of them, lose interest in them, throw them away, stuff them in boxes in the attic. But not so with God, right? And the next section of our psalm demonstrates that God's creation was completed in such a way that continually provides for the needs of all of His creatures. He never tires of us or shoves us into a box and puts us into the attic. And so we look at this next section and we find that the providence of God, or if I may, the providence of God, this, 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 this impulse within God that causes Him to care for, to, to seek the good of, to provide for those who are His creatures. And so this providence of God in creation should cause us to please Him as well. Let's read verses 10 to 18. God makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from the upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of His work. He makes grass to grow for the cattle, plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens men's hearts, oil to make their face to shine, bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are also well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that He planted. There the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats, and the crags are a refuge for the hyrax. So starting out here in these verses, we find here in verses 10 to 11 that these waters that God could use and has used to devastate the earth are normally used by God to supply the needs of His creatures. It's not by chance that we live on an earth that is nearly covered by water because it's one of the primary needs that God's creatures have. And his, creatures are his creation is designed with an intricate, interlocking mechanism such that all the needs of his creatures are variously met. But as we look through these verses at the many things that God has provided, something even more remarkable emerges. And something I think that uh, evolutionary theory has very difficult time explaining. The point of the psalmist seems to go further than a statement that all of our needs are met, that God provides all of our needs in this interconnected network that we call the universe, but rather that God's creatures derive pleasure from all that God supplies. He supplies not only their needs, but also their wants. Note the words that the psalmist uses throughout here. The birds, we find, lift their voices up to sing in verse 12. Now, Stop to think about that. Do you realize that ornithologists, bird scientists, really have very little understanding of why many of the songbirds sing? Of course, we, we all know that some of the chirps have identifiable functions. You know, sometimes you know, the screams of the hawk paralyze the prey and, and all that. But, but, there's, but there's many of the songbirds that sing, you go out on a, on a, on a fresh morning uh, in the spring here, and you just hear the, 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 the air is just filled with the songs of these birds. And scientists really are flummoxed by the fact that they sing. Why do they do this? Well, this passage tells us. To express the satisfaction they have in God, and I think to direct our attention to Him. 
We're not, we don't simply have our needs, and neither do the birds. They are not merely sustained by God, they're satisfied by God. Uh, note here uh, that uh, it's not just that we have bread and water. You know, we can be sustained for a very long time by bread and water, right? But, as you can see here, I've, I've been more than sustained, right? Okay. I've, I've been satisfied, and so have the rest of us, right? We've been satisfied, and that's the idea of verse 13. The earth is not only sustained, but satisfied. This idea uh, carries over into verse 15, where we find that the work of our hands not only meets our needs, but also makes us happy. No matter what our state in life, it's a perpetual temptation that we all have to curse our economy, right? To complain that we don't have enough. We don't have all the material blessings that we might want, but this verse reminds us that we all, we all have the means to satisfy not only our needs, but also to meet our chaste desires as well. Not one of us here, no matter how poor we are, is forced to drink only water. Now, I might choose to drink only water, but we all have the means to enjoy other things. After we leave here, we're going to walk outside and there's going to be a variety of things. Coffee, tea, probably can have pop or Kool-Aid, whatever the case may be. And we do this because we find greater satisfaction and pleasure in drinking these things than we do in drinking water alone. And for that reason, we imbibe. Verse 15 also speaks of oils. The value of that may elude us a little bit because uh, we are not in a, in, a, in, a, in a Near Eastern culture here that uh, uses oils a little bit more liberally than we do. I guess essential oils. But. but the fact is, we all have perfumes and skin creams and soap and deodorant. Why do we have those things? Because we need them? No, we, but we do want them, and I'm so very glad that many of you chose to use them this morning, right? They're, they're, they're very pleasant to have. Why does God give them? Well, because He has given us very wholesome desires that exceed our basic needs, and He is concerned that we realize our desires as much as our needs. And this is the point of these verses here. This is where it ends. He gives us food not only to sustain our bodies, but also our hearts. Even the trees, verse 16, drink their fill. And the, the animals have homes in them. Uh, homes that are not only adequate here, but described here in terms like a refuge or a home. We all know the difference between a house and a home, right? Uh, I, I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania. I don't have family lives out there any longer. But if I ever get out there, I always want to go past 1965 Rosenberger Road in Quakertown, PA. Why? It's just like all the rest of the houses there. But not for me, right? Because I lived there 18 years. I grew up there, and it was my home. It was different from the rest of the houses around. I like to drive past that because it's not just any house. It was my refuge, my place of fond memories. And we find that even the animals are given homes with that kind of sentiment attached to them because it's in God's nature to provide for His creatures. But more than that, 
to give them chaste desires, emotions, psychological compulsions, and He provides for these as well. And for this reason, creation is instinctively cheerful, right? The birds sing. Consider the lilies, Christ says, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these. And what's the the punchline? If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he also clothe you? So we see then, not only the power of God, but also the providence of God, uh, that should cause us to uh, please him, make him glad. But the psalmist isn't done. He uses another 12 verses here, to speak of the wisdom of God in creation. It's, of course, related here to his providence. But the wisdom seems to emerge here most, most clearly in verses 19 to 30. Verse 19, he made the moon to mark off the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God, and then the sun rises. They steal away and return to lie down in their dens. And people go out for their work, to their labor until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There's the sea, vast, spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan just beneath them, which you formed to frolic there. All these creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. You send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And so we find here that the wisdom is observed here by the psalmist in this section, climaxing, I think, in the middle of it, verse 24, that God in wisdom made everything. Wisdom, very simply defined, is the ability to apply what we know. And God is perfect in wisdom because He is infinite knowledge. So He's able to apply all that He knows, and it makes a very favorable combination for us who live in His created universe. So, what what draws the psalmist to this conclusion? Well, first of all, he notes how carefully God placed various aspects of his creation together to live in harmony. He starts here with the day and night cycle that ensures this will remain the case. At night, verses 20 and 21 says, the dangerous wild beasts emerge to seek their food from God. That's a good thing, you know, that... They need to eat too. And they come out at night to seek their food from God. Now, we as 21st century Americans sort of lose sight of the fact that in much of the history of the world, nighttime was a very, very, very dangerous time. And it's very appropriate that we move indoors during those hours. That's not a bad thing, because animals need to eat too. They're simply seeking their food from God, and He gives it to them. But... If animals and people were to interact that closely during the day, then we could have some pretty bad situations. And so we find that the animals are out at night, they seek their food from God, but then they withdraw 
They hide in their dens and we come out. We emerge from our houses and we're able to seek our food from God with minimal fear. Apparently before the flood this was not the case, but afterwards it was. Uh, there's a, we become a meat-dependent society. Animals start eating each other and we start eating animals too. And it seems like there's as much protection of the animals as there is people with this day-night cycle, right? All of you who are deer hunters know, right? When, when are you going to, to, to find a deer? Well, it's sort of hovering in between dark and light, either in the morning or in the evening. And it's, it's, it's hard to hunt deer. I, I, I used this passage once when I, I, I preached a wild game dinner, and I said this is the psalm for, for disappointed deer hunters, right? It explains why, right? <laughs> because the deer seek their food from God principally at night, okay, or at that sort of that twilight in between, and we fe- seek our food from God during the day. And so we just sort of have to meet in the middle in order to have a chance to, 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 to get one of those deer. And why is this? Because God designed it that way. If it wasn't that way, either we might be annihilated by the vicious beasts or the deer might be eliminated by us. And that's how it happens on land, and then it goes on to say the same thing happens in the water, verses 25 and 26. God's wisdom in in maintaining the balance of nature is demonstrated here in a different way. Great numbers of fish remain safe and satisfied just underneath the surface of the, of the water, and we're on boats above them. When I go fishing, they remain safe the whole time. But, but, uh, but, but the fact is, this is designed by God in such a way to keep the harmony and the balance within creation, and so that both animals and people can seek their food from God and receive it. And so God, in His wisdom, allows both to meet their Disparate needs very, in a very carefully organized, orchestrated creation. All of these various groups, mismatched though they may be, verse 27 says, all wait on God to receive their food, and in verse 28, he gives it to them, not only giving us what is needful, but also what is good, what is suitable to our various constitutions, that which causes us, as we saw in the previous verses, to actually be cheerful, Verses 29 and 30 are perhaps the hardest verses to fit into this section, into the general mood of this psalm, which is rather buoyant. Verse 29 speaks particularly of death, which seems out of place. Verse 30, the uh, the revivication, the giving of life again. And I think the point of this verse seems to be that there is nothing in creation that is left to chance. Nothing is outside the power, the providence, and the wisdom of God. God is completely aware and in control of even the death of small birds, right? Sparrows don't fall unless he knows it. Much, much more when one of us falls. As the song goes, time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening of day. But even in death that great enemy, in whose face we are completely helpless. This is not beyond the control of God. He is the one who keeps us in life and removes life from us. His Holy Spirit is the agent of both. God does not forget us and surely and securely holds us in His perpetual grasp, even at the moment of death. 
And so this whole psalm seems to highlight not just the fact that God created all things, but that He created and sustains all things with infinite power, exceptional thoughtfulness, perfect wisdom, with, with, with an acute and lasting concern for everything that He has created. And so what should our response be? And that's the question that is asked and answered in these last five verses. Well, we should be grateful, of course. We should be willing to do whatever He demands of us. We should hold Him in awe and praise Him. But the psalmist adds some specificity to that in verses 31 to the end of the psalm. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to Him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. So verse 31, let the glory of God endure forever. And what does that look like? Well, it takes the form, the verse continues, of God deriving pleasure back from His own works. God takes delight in the attentions of His people, in the cheerfulness of His creatures. We recognize, right, that the birds sing. They're cheerful. It's instinctive with them. And oftentimes we humans are the least likely to engage in this kind of praise for God. Second, the psalmist says, let my meditations be pleasing to him. What's that look like? Well, it takes the form, the verse continues, of us being glad in God. We recognize the power, the providence, the wisdom of God. We pause to marvel at the intricacies of God's goodness. Thank him not only for the water and the bread, but also delight in that which he has given to us, the pleasures that we have not only in our refrigerator, but all around us. It takes time, it takes the form of us pausing to drink in the beauty, as the psalmist did, of a tree that has drunk its fill and towers over us, or the bird that feels secure and bursts into song, and realize that these things point to the goodness of God and not to the capriciousness of chance. A few years ago, in preparation for a series on thankfulness that I delivered over at uh, Gibraltar, I did a study of the topic of thankfulness and uh, used a concordance to find all the uses of the word and its cognates throughout the uh, Scripture. See what the Scripture had to say about the idea of being grateful to God, being glad in Him. And one particularly arresting passage that caught my eye was in Romans 1. I'd like for you to turn there as we wrap things up this morning. Romans chapter 1. Verses 18 through 20. Romans 1, 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodlessness, the, the, the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what they may know about God is plain to them. God's made it plain to them. From the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, what we've been talking about, being understood by what has been made so that they are without excuse. But, though they knew God, 
they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. I think you can see a lot of parallels here in this passage uh, to the one that we uh, looked at this morning in Psalm 104. God has revealed himself, all of these invisible qualities, through what he has made. But unlike the birds that burst spontaneously into songs of thanksgiving to God, we commit a very grievous sin. In fact, we might call it the primary sin of mankind. Now, by, by saying that, I'm not saying that it's the worst sin that we could commit. In fact, if you read Romans, keep, keep going in Romans, you find that there are more and worse sins uh, that, to which we graduate. But this is primary in the sense that it is the first one chronologically. Okay? Before we get to those other sins, we have to commit this first sin. And that is, they did not glorify God or give thanks to Him. So in a very real sense, I think we can say that all sins flow from that one sin of omission. They didn't glorify God, and they didn't give thanks to Him. And so as we come to the end of our session this morning, my appeal is very simple. Don't join the rest of your hell-bound human race in this primary sin. Be thankful to God. Or in the longer version, because of the power, the providence, and wisdom with which God created and sustains His universe, we should make it the very goal of our existence to be thankful and to please Him. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful, even as we observe the changing of the seasons that is ongoing here, uh, for the reminders of your goodness, your grace, your provision that is ongoing. And Lord, as we, uh, as we uh, close this time here uh, this, this morning, I ask that we would be mindful of the fact that you, in your grace, your grace is both common and special, in the, in the world around us and then also in the uh, death of your Son, are something that should cause us to respond favorably to you, that should cause us to respond with thanksgiving, with submission, and with praise to you. And Lord, I ask that that might be the theme of our existence in the upcoming week, we pray in your name. Amen.